Welcome to Parsha in Progress. I'm Abigail Pogrubin, author of My Jewish Year. And I'm Rabbi Dov Linzer, president of Yeshivat Chovevei Torah Rabbinical School. And we are two very different Jews talking about the same amazing Torah together. Hello, Dov Linzer. Hello, Abby. Kitetse, you want to translate for us since I always make you the translator? When you go out, when, when you, you go, go out, out to war. Who's going out? You, the people of Israel, are living in the land of Israel, and now you are waging war against your enemy. Right. So things kind of get ugly here in this Parsha. This is one of the challenging moments, I think, in Judaism where we have a section that we might want to obscure or forget or excise (laughs) because it's tough stuff. But I'm going to read it because it's there and we do not avoid our tradition. We do not avoid our our own texts. We are in Deuteronomy 21.10. So this is uh, Moses, again, instructing. When you take the field against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your power, and you take some of them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire her and would take her to wife, you shall bring her into your house, and she shall trim her hair, pare her nails. Let's just pause here. Why is she cutting her fingernails? I think the best explanation is is that this is a, a ritual of mourning, and we're going to see the verse later mention that we're giving her an opportunity to mourn for her parents. Okay, so you're that's kind of a gross detail, but um, you're going to come back to it. And <laughs> right. discard her captive's garb. She shall spend a month's time in your house, lamenting her father and mother. After that, you may come to her and possess her, and she shall be your wife. Then, should you no longer want her, you must release her outright. You must not sell her for money, since you had your will of her. You must not enslave her. Oh, that's so nice. You raped her, but you don't have to make her a slave. It's a, that, that's her, I was going to say, redemption, deliverance, <laughs> that you didn't make her a slave, even though you obviously already enslaved her. <laughs> well, first, I do want to also say that the word that was translated as uh, possess her is actually more, you know, you shall have sex with her. So exactly that, permitting. Uh, well, I wonder why they soft pedal that. So it's clear. Basically, you're, you're in war. You see someone, you see a woman that you desire on the enemy's side. You take her if you want her. Let's talk about why this is so troubling to us. Um, because it's we're not dealing that complicated. With... <laughs> well, but I think it'll pay to spell it out. We're dealing with taking people captive against their will and uh, raping and having sex with a woman against her will. But again, you know, I would ask or put out there, as I've done before, which is, uh, what was the larger context in society? I mean, you know, until very recently, people would go to war, take captives, turn those captives into slaves. Uh, the women slaves would obviously be used uh, as sexual property. So this is taking place within a particular context. That being said, I think we would have hoped that the Torah would have done something more to rectify this reality. The rabbis don't so much as mitigate the laws of the story, but they acknowledge the problem. The rabbis say the Torah here is speaking against a man's evil inclination, meaning this is a law that really ideally should not be on the books. And the only reason it's here is because men, particularly men in war, outside of civilized society, will sort of act, you know, in unrestrained ways and will rape the woman in the battlefield. And the Torah is saying, like, let's try to get control over this situation. So what it's going to say is not going to be ideal, but it's going to at least... We're going to work within the reality that this happens in war, that there's kind of an, an animalizing, maybe it's because of war, maybe war is the excuse. There's a taking of, raping of women, brutalizing, traumatizing of women. And mm-hmm, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's almost like the rabbis are, assume, are assuming that default behavior, and they're basically saying, okay, knowing that that bad thing's going to happen, at least you can't make her a slave. 
Well, that's the end. And I would go even earlier. Like, don't don't act at that moment and rape her then. If you take her as a captive, she can become your wife, but you have to go through this procedure. And this procedure actually makes you calm down, wait a month, decide, do you just want her sexually or are you really prepared to have her as your wife? And now you're back in society. So hopefully society's constraints will sort of exert some, you know, influence. So that's, I think, how the rabbis are reading it, that demanding this process will hopefully lead you to having a change of heart and not acting on it. And I want to just give quickly the other example in this Parsha, which is similarly difficult, but this is again a Parsha where the rabbis are wrestling with, I think, thorny stuff that they might prefer not be on the page. Um, And Mm -hmm. this is how we deal with the wayward son, your son who is drunk and disobedient. And we're in 2118 of Deuteronomy. If a man has a wayward and defiant son who does not heed his father or mother and does not obey them even after they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the public place of his community. They shall say to the elders of his town, this son of ours is disloyal and defiant. He does not heed us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Thereupon the men of his town shall stone him to death. Thus you will sweep out evil from your midst. All Israel will hear and be afraid. Okay, so the mitigating story here (laughs) is why you are literally stoning your son publicly because he drank too much. Right. We'd all be be stoning our sons and daughters all day long in this moment. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. In 2020. (laughs) Right. So here the rabbis actually uh, do mitigate it more in practice, not just contextualize it. And they say that this story never actually occurred. Nobody ever acted on this. And they do that by creating all these criteria that will make it impossible for it to ever occur. You know, that the parents have to look exactly alike and their voice has to be exactly alike. And they add all of these criteria so it can't happen. The rabbis sometimes do that. Like, you know, the Torah is always talking about stoning people, but the rabbis make it so impossible to accept the testimony that that will never happen. So that's acknowledging the difficulty of this and sort of making it moot. But the rabbis also say, so why was it written in the Torah? And their answer is, well, so that we should learn from it. But they never tell us what we're supposed to learn from it, because that's the question we're asking. Like, what is the good thing we can learn from Is there anything about the fifth commandment that's operating here that you're supposed to honor your mother and father? And this is the extreme of if you don't? I think that's absolutely the case. But the question I would ask is, what is the point of, even if it was never practiced, what was the point of expressing that you could get to the point where you would, uh, the kid would be killed, would be stoned as a result of this defiance? Is that really what we're supposed to sort of believe, you know, is that it goes that far? Do you have any thoughts about that, Abby? Well, you answer first. You pose the question. <laughs> I'm always answering my own questions. I thought, I, I thought I'd hear what you have to say. I think that one way of thinking about this is, not just this particular event, but the verse ends with saying all of Israel will hear and will be afraid. Maybe what's going on is a fear that this will undermine the institution of parental authority. It's not just my son disrespected me and therefore he deserves this death. But if people can flagrantly, publicly, you know, defy their parents, and I think maybe it's more about them defying the parents than about eating the meat and drinking the wine, then what will this do to the institution of parenthood? And while that's extreme, you know, I think it's a recurring complaint that people have, which is like, oh, kids these days, it used to be seen and not heard and whatever happened to the way you're supposed to treat your parents. So I think that's like a piece of this. I think there's also the piece, I guess, of the kind of publicness of your disappointment of the failure. And that Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, still continues to this day that we all fear that kind of our communities will know 
that our kid tripped up in some way, and particularly tragically when there is kind of drug abuse or alcohol abuse or, you know, a kid drops out of school. Like there are ways in which it's almost like a metaphorical stoning. It's it's not like your kid is mm. killed, but you fear it. And in that mm -hmm. sense, maybe it forces you to pay more attention to it because you don't want to risk that kind of mm. humiliation of your failure mm. as a parent. Mm. Even if wow, it's not really your failure that. as a parent, that your child gets addicted to a drug or drops out of school or, you know, stops attending. I just feel like there is that fear of public shame it somehow hmm. reflects on on your capacity and ability and even compassion as a parent that you failed in right. that way. Right. And how much is the fact that they're coming forward and complaining to the court, you know, they're sort of saying, pointing their finger at their son, but how much are they implicitly making it public what they weren't able to do? You know, maybe that's part of what the rabbis say that will never happen. That may be reading it through your lens, looking at it through your lens, that shaming themselves by actually saying in public, look at what has happened, you know, what our son is doing. Why won't he listen to us? Like, and people say, well, maybe it has something to do with you and not with him. You know, I actually think the verse says, you know, we've beaten him and he won't listen to us. So I've, I've often said, like, maybe there's some correlation between the two of those, you know? So, right. Like, and, and sometimes yeah. we all overcorrect as parents. And, and this yeah. is a reminder. So let's just end on the note that we promise never to stone our children. How about that as a takeaway? <laughs> I, uh, I, I can completely concur with that. Uh, have a good job, Ms. Abby. Shabbat shalom, Dove. Parsha in Progress is written and hosted by Abigail Pogrubin and Rabbi Dove Linzer. The show is produced by Shira Telushkin and executive produced by Josh Cross and Tablet Magazine. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. We'd be so grateful if you'd head over to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It helps more people find us. You can also write or fetch to us at this email, progress at tabletmag.com. Thanks for listening.